creating cultural awareness and understanding. This is Culture Click. Culture Click is written and produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. Today on Culture Click, we stopped by No Name Bar for a night of storytelling. The event was inspired by the popular podcast, The Moth. Several different speakers told their own personal stories that ranged from more upbeat topics to heavy topics that were enlightening and inspirational. I'm Briley Harris. Stick around to hear a night of storytelling from local speakers at No Name Bar on Culture Click. Hello. Thanks, everybody, for coming out tonight. This is our, our first anthology, a night of storytelling. Hopefully there'll be more coming up. Um, but just to give you a little bit of background about this, um, the easiest thing to do to explain this, to see what you're gonna, to explain what you're gonna see tonight, is to ask people if they're familiar with the Moth radio program or podcast. Well, some people, okay. Um, the Moth's tagline basically is true stories told live in front of an audience, which is basically what we're gonna do tonight. Uh, I should say at the beginning that we have no affiliation with the Moth, other than that they serve as my inspiration. Uh, the Moth radio program is on National Public Radio on the weekends, and it's my favorite hour of the week to, to listen to the radio and to hear stories being told. So I decided that it would be kind of a cool thing to do in Winona, if we could have it in Winona, you know, do a little local program similar to that, it would be kind of neat to do. So I had that idea, and I thought the No Name Bar here would be the perfect venue for it. So I was down here one night to see a band, and I approached Cindy and Brian, the owners uh, of the bar, about my idea, and they were very enthused about hosting this with me. And I thought, oh, now I have to actually do this thing. <laughs> but, uh, and I'd like to thank them, especially Cindy did a lot of work with, the, she did the posters, she did all the event uh, planning, um, so she did a lot of work there, the promotion. Uh, we do have, uh, four speakers lined up for you tonight. Um, we had five, but one person couldn't be here. So, um, plus, as the host, I feel obligated that I might have to contribute as well. So, you might hear a story from me later on. Um, but we may have some time at the end of the evening. Uh, so, if anybody feels inclined that you'd like to uh, do this, or as the night progresses and you hear what some other people are saying, and you've had another drink or two, um, there's a picture down at the end of the bar, in the far end of the bar, with some slips of paper. If you want to put your name on a slip and put it in there, we'll draw a name, a name or two at the end and bring some other people up here maybe. So, uh, And I think that is, uh, that's the extent of my introduction. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first speaker tonight, who uh, is the one person that I didn't know. Um, we put out a, a call for submissions, and a few people I knew talked to me. And then I got an email out of the blue from someone who wanted to be part of this. And so uh, please welcome Kelly Kirby. I didn't tell him I was going to bring props, so now he's panicking. Um, Okay, so when I started to try to figure out what story I wanted to tell, uh, my wife Carrie, who's down here with a shirt saying I'd rather be with the dogs, um, in all of her supportive glory, was like, do you know any scary stories? And I said, I don't, I'm like, I'm searching my brain, I'm like, I don't know, I don't have any ghost stories. I've never had an encounter with a mass murdering psychopath. Um, thank you. And. Uh, all I could think was when I saw Silence of the Lambs when I was 12, 
and then didn't sleep for a week. That was the scariest moment of my life. Um, but then I got to start thinking about like Halloween costumes. And again, my stories kind of revolve around baseball. So when I was younger, my favorite costume ever was um, I went dressed as an actual baseball. Okay, so uh, my mom's friend Shelly, who's like the seamstress of Winnishik County in Iowa, um, made me this giant baseball costume. And so I got into it. I mean, I was probably like nine, I want to say. Um, and what it was was we got into it. There were snaps in case I had to go to the bathroom down below. I thought that was ingenious. And then we stuffed it full of newspaper. Okay. Now, this seemed fantastic. We went trick-or-treating all night. For, there was some sort of like line up all the elementary kids in the high school gym moment. And then they gave us all a 50-cent piece. And everyone's favorite costume got a dollar, and we were rich. And um, the problem was, by the time I'd gotten there, the snaps had kind of stopped working the way they were intended. So I stood in the row and basically pooped the Des Moines Register onto the floor throughout the entire judging competition, <laughs> as it just fell out of me. And I thought, OK, well, that's a pretty great costume story. But um, then I got to thinking, like, the number one thing that people dress their kids up as is some like occupation, right? Like other than witches, ghosts, etc. Everybody wants kids to look like cute little versions of adults. And then the adults, of course, want to dress up like occupations as long as you put the word sexy in front of the title. It was totally good. I looked online for weird sexy costume ideas and uh, the funniest one was this, a sexy mime. I don't even know what you would do with that, but um, so I got to think of my job. I work at Pack and Mail here in town. We pack and mail things. Um, and my, co my, my occupation outfit is a black t-shirt and baseball hat and jeans. This is what I wear all the time. And so then I thought, well, you know what a really great story would be that I know all of you really care about? <laughs> would be the story of how I came to own 107 baseball caps. Sound good? Okay. So, I didn't own many hats prior to the age of 24. Um, I think a lot of that was born out of, uh, in high school, you were considered to be a heathen by the teachers if you wore a baseball cap. Like, it was like considered the biggest affront to humanity. You were rude and disrespectful, and so I was just not encouraged to ever really wear hats. But when I was eight, I kept scorebook for our, our high school softball team. And when the season was over, they gifted me a softball hat. I'm sure they gifted it because like most of the snaps on the back were broken, but I was able to like put that on. And since these were my heroes, I wore that like every possible opportunity that I could, right? Um, toward the end of high school and through college, I owned a University of Kentucky hat. Did I go to the University of Kentucky? I did not. I went here. Um, did, do I know anyone that went to the University of Kentucky? I didn't. I don't really remember how I got that hat, but it's in like all of my college pictures. Um, and then when I graduated, I uh, went to Normal, Illinois, which sounds like a cool place, and I bought, so this is where the props come in, okay? So I bought a Cubs hat. I don't know if you remember 2003 for the Cubs. It was awful and a freaking nightmare, right? But I thought, what would make that better than buying a hat that's three sizes too small and gives me a migraine every time I put it on? That will definitely impact the Bartman game. So this is what I bought. Now, I can hardly stretch this over my head, and this is exactly how it fit when I wore it in 2003 and got nightmares from it, okay? So, 
Those were my three primary hats prior to marrying my wife. Um, the thing was, was that I didn't really consider owning other hats, but then I started playing slow pitch softball, as all lesbians are required to do. And um, I made a 15 year career out of playing slow pitch softball and I wore the same hat for literally every game. Um, it started off as a navy blue twins hat. Um, it ended as a gray, dirt, sweat, sanded, stained hat that my wife made me throw away. <laughs> or else I would probably put that gross thing on my head. The cool thing about the hat was that I, it like formed perfectly, you know, it just molded beautifully to my head, so I wore it all the time. And, my, and Carrie thought that maybe I should get a, a Cubs hat that actually fit. So now I have two hats, right? So in 2008, I uh, went through probably the greatest depression I think I've ever had for most of the year. And this culminated in a suicide attempt in October. And my therapist, I had promised her like the day before that nothing was going to happen. And having been a therapist myself now, I'm sure that she was fairly panicked for the majority of like the next two days. And so she scheduled me an appointment for like 9 a.m. the morning after that Sunday when she was really concerned. And I thankfully did not uh, obviously um, commit suicide, but I woke up the next day, I was lost, confused, blank, everything. And so I thought to myself, I'm not going to give her anything to work with today. I don't want to be vulnerable. And my solution to being vulnerable was to put on my Minnesota Twins hat and wear it to therapy. And I never went to therapy hatless again. <laughs> In 2014, so six years later, I uh, was hospitalized um, for a major depressive episode. And while I was in during the World Series um, between the Kansas City Royals and the San Francisco Giants. So I wore my Royals hat on the ward the whole time that I was there for about eight days. And at one point, I convinced everyone else that was there with me to have a World Series viewing party, even though I promise you I was the only baseball fan up there. Okay. We had pop popcorn, we had candy, we had just, it was this very weird but wonderful moment, I think, for about three hours together. And I actually thought to myself that would this have happened if I had not worn a Kansas City Royals hat and convinced everyone that I was a Royals fan totally accidentally? No, it would not have. So the conclusion to that was my baseball caps bring people together, okay? This is how you form community, is wearing baseball hats. Obviously the only thing you could get out of that. So with this, I began my collection. Um, I decided that I was going to get all 30 baseball teams a hat for every single one, right? Did I go out and just buy 30 baseball teams worth of hats? No, of course not. You can't just go straight through and then be done. So there were some that were harder to obtain than others. All right. One of the ones that was hardest to obtain was the Arizona Diamondbacks. For some reason, they didn't have the hat that I wanted online. So a couple of friends of mine were going to Arizona, and I said, okay, well, would you bring me back a Diamondbacks hat? 
And I don't know why I said this, because it's not like I was flying to all these other states to pick, this, these weren't travel novelties, but I was like, oh, you're gonna be in Arizona, maybe you can find me a Diamondbacks hat. And these two don't, they didn't care about baseball, they didn't care about, I don't think they cared about my collection, and yet they came back and they brought me one of, like, the exact hat I was looking for. If I can put it on correctly. This one also fits way better, so I wanted to jump to that part of the story. So then I began collecting hats. And I started to explain to people that there were different types of hats. There was the casual hat, okay? Um, these were just the ones that I wore out to nights like tonight. tonight. Um, then I explained that there were dress hats. These are not fancy dress hats. These are literally baseball caps, but they're just in like a little better shape or they're kind of cool. Um, and when I said to Carrie, yeah, I'm gonna, got, I gotta go find one of my dress hats, she like looked at me and, and I was like, what? She's like, dress baseball hat? I'm like, well, yeah, because, I mean, you know, it looks nice. And she's like, we're going to a wedding. <laughs> and I'm like, I got some for that. It's totally fine. Um, and so we, I, I began to build this collection, and, and I <laughs> strayed from having to buy a Cardinals hat for a very long time because I'm a Cubs fan, and that was just never going to happen. Um, my parents decided to enable this by offering for a Christmas present that they would help round out my hat collection. And I think that it was my mother's attempt yet again to try to wrap up one of my weird obsessions she doesn't understand. And instead it was just me screaming in my head, free hats, this is great, right? So I just turned over um, the bill to them and we just kept going. And then at one point, Carrie decided that we needed to, a place to display the hats. And so she transformed my office into this bright yellow room, and we decided to hang hooks. They line all the way around the walls, and she said, how many hooks do you think you need? And at the time, I only, I only owned 73 hats only. And, um, and in my head, I was like, 200. <laughs> and then I was like, that seems insane. And so I said, okay, let's go with 100, then I've got room to grow. And she's like, how much growing are we gonna do? And I said, I'm not really sure. She's like, you can't have any of the walls in the living room. And I'm like, then what is the point of being an adult? I don't really understand, okay? I also wanna mention that I am, <laughs> I have a giant head and my hair is very thick, okay? And you know, we talk a lot about how the media and uh, clothing companies body shame people, but let me tell you, they don't make really great hats for people with big heads and a lot of hair. And I finally found this specific type of hat that worked for big-headed, thick-haired, middle-aged lesbians, which I'm sure is a booming demographic in the hat collection, okay? And so, it, again, it was just like, it kind of just kept going and it was enabled by all of these people who thought that having hats was great. So I now own hats for all of the Cubs minor league franchises. I don't know how many Cubs fans can tell you all of the minor league franchises that they have. One of them is the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, right? I think they have the greatest things in the world and also I hope they have a fight song that is Go Go Mighty Pelicans because I would like to learn it and if they don't have one, I will write it. So, Pelicans are awesome, all right? But the cardinal problem still existed. So one of the things about Winona that's just amazing and f fantastic is um, 
as customers at Pack and Mail, we are often treated like we are trying to match kidney donors versus send Halloween candy across the state. All right, people love coming in there. They adore us for some reason. They think that we're wonderful. And my hats are kind of like a conversation starter. During the pandemic, I like to wear rival hats with masks, right? So I wore like a brewer's hat and a Cubs mask because it got people to talk about like, how does this work? And I would have done anything to not talk about the pandemic anymore. So I was like, I'll do whatever you guys want to. So I had a woman come in at one point and, and she said, oh, you're a Cubs fan. And I said, yeah. And, and I said, I own a lot of hats. She said, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but I just don't know how I'm ever gonna buy a Cardinals hat. And, and she said, well, I'm a Cardinals fan. And I said, well, then your shipment's gonna cost $2 more. But um, <laughs> I was like, I'm like, yeah, I don't really know. I'm going to close that gap. I'm like, I'm, I'm not usually a quitter, but I might quit at 29. And, and she said, well, she's like, I have a couple of extras. And I said, all right. <laughs> and, and she's like, I'll do it if you take a picture in it. <laughs> do you see what I do? I suffer for my collections, you guys. Okay. So she went home. She went, and got a Cardinals hat. And I brought it to prove that I own it, but if you think I'm putting it on, you're out of your minds. Oh, I'm not doing it, don't worry, you're fine. I put it on one time, took a picture, and I'm, I'm golden. So, so I own a St. Louis Cardinals hat. So then all of a sudden I owned all 30 hats and everyone thought that this would stop, right? This obsession, this crazy would, would stop. And, and I'm like, but, but now, you know, enough time has gone by where of course they have all new hats. So I just need to keep going. And also there's the NHL the, and the NBA, and I don't like the NFL enough to buy all their hats, but whatever, right? So Carrie again was like, where's the stopping point on this? And, and I said, I don't know, I just need more dress hats. And so I'm not sure what she had drank or smoked the night that she ordered me this one, but I told her she couldn't complain when I wore it out in public um, and claim not to own me. And she said, well, I mean, I don't know. Are you really going to wear it? I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to wear it. I told everyone that night who my wife was. I walked around, I was like, she's right there. <laughs> she got me this. They were like, that doesn't make you any less crazy. I was like, mm, sorry. Um, so one of the, the best part about this that you have to understand is, so I have this room that's mine. It's lined with hat. I mean, it's just lined with all these different colors. It is a magical place um, to walk into for me. And every morning when I go to work, I get to go in and decide, what am I in the mood for? What, what team do I want to support? You know, I have hats that say all sorts of things. One of my favorites is this one. I wear this on days I want to be extra gay, okay? So I have all these choices, and it's kind of just this moment every day that I, kind of, I get to decide what I'm going to be, how I'm going to look, because I only wear a black t-shirt, so I can mix and match as I wish. And it really has helped me to feel sort of like it, this is mine, right? This, it's not necessarily I want to own the identity as the hat girl at Peck and Mill, but the fact that I'm allowed to wear them there, that I'm allowed to express this very simple, small part of me is, is, is amazing in terms of what I've always wanted to do as a professional. And Winona State frowned when I wore hats as a therapist, so, you know, I upgraded. Um, but... The thing that I thought about the most when I was talking about the Halloween costumes was just that, you know, you, you are welcome to go as me for Halloween, all right? Um, if you're, sh you know, it's, I don't think you can be a sexier me, but if you want to try, you could. Um, 
but you have to get the hats right. And if you're short on baseball caps, I will just offer you that you can online purchase, and I shit you not, you can buy a sexy slice of pizza costume. So feel free to use that if you need to. Thank you guys very much for coming. Thanks, Kelly. It was great. I think my favorite hat, I have an isotopes hat. Yes. A friend of mine gave me, when it was, but it was before the Albuquerque. It was when it was the Simpsons, the Springfield isotopes. Um, it struck me when, as I, for some reason when I was sitting down, that when I did my introduction earlier, I forgot to introduce myself. And I think at least half of you know me, but in case you don't, my name is Daryl. Uh, I'm the owner of Chapter 2 Books down the street, and uh, again, welcome to this. Uh, so our second speaker tonight um, is a, a friend of mine, um, Karen Dulac. And Karen, I knew from, we've done some theater stuff together, and one of the most interesting things we ever did, for me, from my perspective <laughs> anyway, um, at one point we did, uh, it was a, a staged reading, but it was a one-person show, and it was the only time I'd ever worked, I, I was directing and she was the actress in the show, and it was the only time I'd ever worked one-on-one -on -one with someone in theater. Uh, uh, it was fabulous. And so Karen was the first person to approach me when we started the idea of having uh, the anthology night, and she's going to tell us a story about, can I say it? Sure. Christmas of the Meats. Christmas of the Meats, Karen Dulac. Yes. You're listening to Culture Click on 89.5 KQAL. Do you love podcasts but crave local content? Well, now you can keep it local with KQAL Podcasts on KQAL.org. Hear interviews with Minnesota bands, artists, chefs, comedians, historians, community leaders, and more. KQAL Podcasts, keeping it local on KQAL.org. Also listen to KQAL on Spotify, Apple, Google, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Well, I ain't going no higher. I ain't going down You're listening to Culture Click on 89.5 KQAL. Hi, good evening. <clears throat> My name is Karen. Um, I'm a nice Karen. Um, I want people to realize how hard the last year and a half has been, not only with COVID, but having the name Karen is about enough to break you. Really. So I'm a nice Karen. There we go. Uh, I have to thank my friend Matt. Matt loves this story so much, and he has begged me and begged me to tell it publicly. And I've told it to a lot of people. And the other night, my husband was talking to my sister-in-law on the phone, and he said, Karen's going to do this storytelling thing. And she said, oh, well, what's she telling a story about? And I... I sat and listened to my husband tell the whole story really well. Like, really, we could switch halfway through, and he could come up and finish it, I think. And I thought, I think I'm good to go if Joe knows this story by heart, and I kind of know this story by heart. So thank you, Matt, because you were the one that always pushed me to tell the Christmas of the Meats story. So if you will all be kind and go back with me in time, I had to do a little bit of research about weather because we're going to go back to the year 2006. And it was a year that we decided uh, that my family was going to visit uh, Winona for the Christmas holiday. 
So that includes my mother and my father, who had been divorced for 31 years, and my brother, and the three of them were going to drive five hours to my house for Christmas Eve. And so I, I asked my brother, what do, you, what do you remember about that day specifically? Anything interesting or anything I should know? No. And, I, and when I told him a little more about my story, he said, I, I don't really remember any of that. And it lives like so infamously in my brain. But anyway, so they traveled to Winona uh, in the afternoon of uh, December 24, 2006. Now, backing up a little bit the night before, my dad had been at the VFW. <clears throat> my dad was the kind of guy who could befriend people very easily uh, and always offered to help people out if they needed a little help. Not necessarily for the family, but always for other people. He was very helpful. So the night before they were on their way to Winona, my dad met this man who he'd never met before. And the man told my dad, uh, I have this half a side of beef that I need to get to Burnsville, Minnesota. And my dad said, you want to know what? I'm going through the Twin Cities tomorrow. I'm going to bring your half a side of beef with me to Winona, Minnesota. So with that settled, my mother, my father, and my brother all headed to Winona on the 24th of December. Now, they arrived, oh, I think early afternoon that day. And the first thing out of my dad's mouth was, uh, Karen, I, I, got, I got stuff we got to put in your freezer. And I said, uh, wh what do you got, Dad? He's like, well, I, 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 I got a, about a half a side of beef in the back of the trunk. And I, I said, uh, Dad, my freezer is the size of a postage stamp. It's attached to my refrigerator, and it's full. And he said, oh, well, we, we've kind of got a problem. And I said, yeah, we've got a problem. Well, any of your neighbors home? Any of your neighbors home? Could I put my beef in the... Because you see, when he stopped in Burnsville earlier that day and knocked on the door at this man's house that he'd never met, uh, that had been given this meat you know, from this guy the night before that my dad had never met before that night, uh, the guy wasn't home. you know. So the meat traveled with them, with all the packages and the luggage in the back of the trunk. So uh, I said... Gal, I don't know what we're going to do because we've got uh, a half a side of beef in your truck and it's 46 degrees outside. Uh, well, let's bury it in the snow in the front yard. That's a good idea. So my son, my brother, my dad, I think I went outside and we tried to find enough snow to bury this container of meat that had come five hours across the state of Minnesota uh, and you got to realize 46 degrees uh, in December meant that there, whatever snow we had, there wasn't much left. And so we might have gathered like three or four cups of snow. I remember my son thinking it was really fun to like gather as much snow as we could find to try to get this thing like buried so if an animal came, they might not find it out in the yard. So we finally, you know, after packing all this snow around this meat, we went, out, we went back in the house and we tried to begin our Christmas celebration. And, uh, and it wasn't too long before my dad said, that's just not gonna work. That's just not gonna work. We can't, we can't leave that meat out in the front yard like that. And then we said, well, what can we do? Like, what should we do with this meat? And my dad said, 
I, I don't know, we, we've got to do something. It's going to start thawing. So somebody had the idea, let's take the meat to the quick trip. Someone at Quick Trip will probably put our meat in a freezer for us. So I don't even remember if I went along, we went up to the corner of Broadway and Baker to that Quick Trip. And they explain the situation. We have a half a side of beef. We have a freezer that's the size of a postage stamp. We don't have anywhere to put this meat, and it's thawing, and, and this guy in Burnsville needs the meat, but he wasn't home, and it was just like, <laughs> and, I, and whoever that nice person was was working that afternoon said, well, we can probably put it in our uh, cooler, but not the freezer. And uh, I, no one ever asked, like, well, why couldn't we put it in the freezer? But that wasn't an option for us. So uh, we said, fine. Yep, that's fine. We will put our container of beef in your, in your cooler. So we went back to the house. And we, again, tried to start Christmas. And then my dad said, that's not going to work. That's just not going to work. That's... Uh, that's a half a side of beef, and it's just going to thaw at the quick trip, and this is bad, and I, this, uh, this man I don't know is expecting this meat to come to him frozen. Uh, so we drove back to quick trip and said, okay, thanks a lot for letting us keep our meat cold for an hour or so. Uh, we're going to take it back to our house. Now we still don't have anywhere to go with the meat, so we buried it again in the snow in the front yard and my son went around back and got more snow and we we just we just made this huge well no there wasn't much snow it was 45 46 degrees so I believe at that point my dad was outside smoking a cigarette my brother was outside smoking a cigarette and I came inside and my mother who has been along on this trip the whole time was standing in the front window of my house looking out of the window. And you must know, my mother was one of the most Christian women on the face of the earth. She, I never heard her say a bad thing about anyone ever. And she had not taken off her coat. So she's been in her coat for a couple hours now, just kind of like watching the antics going on. And she's got her hands shoved in the pockets of her coat. And I hear my mother say as she's looking out the window, I am so sick of talking about this meat. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I feel the same way. This is not how I wanted Christmas to go. And so I believe sometime a little bit later, they decided that they couldn't stay. They had to try to find the guy in Burnsville and get that meat back. So we quickly wrapped up give, or unwrapped gifts, and they left. And it was the shortest, perhaps the most pleasant <laughs> Christmas we've ever had with my family. I don't know. Uh, interesting, to say the least. So I know in Christmases since, I've said to my dad, you're coming for Christmas, right? Yep. You don't have any meat in your car, right? There isn't one piece of meat in your car. Nope. You promised me there's no meat in your car. No. I don't even want you to stop for a beef stick. Do you understand that? You drive straight here. That's it. So that is my story of the Christmas of the meats. Um, I wish you all a lovely Thanksgiving. I hope none of your relatives show up with a half side of beef and you don't have anywhere to put it. So thank you.
Thank you, Karen. Um, I did mention earlier that um, we are having a, the opportunity to put your name in it into a, a little hat or a little picture back there. Do we have any names in there at this point, Cindy? No, all right, well, there's still, still time. Um, and also, I would, I would also like to, to, my idea behind doing this event was to not just do it as a one-time thing, but to do this um, regularly. So even if you don't feel like you need to do this tonight, um, we're hopefully going to do another one of these um, maybe three months down the road. So hopefully kind of on a quarterly basis. Um, turnout's been great. Make sure you're uh, uh, buying some drinks. Support the bar. Tip the bartenders. All right. So our next speaker is um, Ben Strand. You want to come on up, Ben? I know Ben from Ben is the, uh, well, I know Ben from being, he's the, I'm not sure what your actual title is, Ben, but for the, he works for the Main Street program in downtown Winona. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Strand, like Daryl said. Uh, I also go by Neb, and uh, Nebulous the Poet is my stage moniker. It's been a few years, probably over two now, since I've been on stage reading, so... I got a little rust to kick off, um, and thank you for the first two readers who read. I really enjoyed both of your stories. Uh, so I'm going to be going in a bit of a different direction here, a little bit heavier topics. There's two things I fear most in life. It's sudden unexpected death, and forgetting things that you know you should remember. So I've been writing since 2010. I was in high school at the time. A new album had dropped by Lupe Fiasco called Lasers. There's a song on the album called Never Forget You. I was listening to the album. That song came on, and after it finished, I decided to get up, go to our computer desk in the sun porch, and write a poem, my first poem. Most of my writing since then has been centered on a few topics. Death, grief, and motherhood. I lost my mom to cancer when I was 13 years old. She was 47. My brother and sister were nine and 11 each. The impact that that had on our lives was profound particularly for me because I was the oldest of all the siblings and my dad worked a full-time job. So being in middle school at the time, I knew I had to take on more responsibilities to help raise my younger siblings while my dad was at work. To this day, I've never lost someone in a sudden or unexpected way Everyone close to me that I've lost in my life, we've been able to prepare for. My mom, my grandparents, my uncle, we all knew when their time came. My parents were up front with me and my siblings about my mother's situation when they approached us at the kitchen table in 2004. They told us that she had become very sick and that she had maybe six months to live. She ended up living for 
three and a half more years. But even that six months at that age was hard. However, being able to reflect on that in my writing and my time since then, I take solace in the fact knowing that there's comfort knowing that you can prepare for a death, that you have a heads up about it. That death and that experiences since then and how it's helped me grow since has been profound. However, in my writing and my poetry and my time on stage, reading it and performing it, I've realized over the last few years that there's one significant aspect, life events of mine that I haven't focused on. In the summer of 2009, I got really sick unexpectedly. My fever was 102, 103. They had no idea what was going on. And the last thing that I remember while being sick was sitting in our basement in the jacuzzi. Bathtub full, jacuzzi jets running on full blast. My feet right next to them. Because my feet were absolutely killing me. It wasn't the fever that got me, it was my feet. It felt like there were thousands of needles being stuffed into them every second. And that's the last thing I remember. This is where I believe, where I feel that my fear of unexpected death and forgetting things I know I should remember come from. I just finished playing video games downstairs and I went upstairs to lay on the couch, watch some TV with my younger brother. My dad and stepmom were away packing things up at her house, getting her ready to move into our place. My brother, I've been told, was extremely brave because while laying on the couch, I blacked out and had a seizure. I woke up 30 hours later from consciousness, didn't know where I was, didn't know why I was there. I was lost in a haze, the gray walls of a hospital, and a doctor's head looming over my head. How's it going? You're back from consciousness. Do you remember your name? I told him, Ben. Do you know where you are? I told him I was in a hospital. Right after I said that, my stepbrother and stepsister walked into the room. My doctor looked at them and then looked back at me and asked if I knew who they were. I couldn't give them a name. I couldn't put a name to their faces. It was tough. I was in the hospital for a week. I had six grand mal seizures in that time. Doctors don't know why, and they couldn't officially diagnose me with epilepsy. Fast forward a few weeks, I'm out of the hospital. I'm at a baseball park watch, uh, watching a baseball game. And I remember begging and pleading to my coach and my parents to let me play. They wouldn't let me because I was still recovering. But the only thing I remember in that time frame from being hospitalized till then was begging and pleading to be able to play a sport that I love. The biggest thing that came out of that in the weeks passing was that I started to realize I don't remember much of my ninth grade year. This is 2008, 2009, 
I was hospitalized in the summer of 2009. I don't remember hardly any of my ninth grade year. I don't remember the school dances, the all-night lockout, my stepsister's graduation party, a cruise that we took on Lake Minnetonka, and a few family trips we took up north like we do every summer. My dad eventually sat me down and he told me a few things. He told me that the doctor said I was lucky I didn't end up dead or permanently brain damaged. That if my brother wasn't there to call the ambulance when I had that first seizure, who knows what, have, what would have happened. Having known that, and having been through watching my mom battle cancer for three and a half years, my dad said that that was the scariest experience of his life, the scariest week of his life. It took a long time for me to register that in the span of two years, my family almost lost two members and how daunting of an impact that could have been. I've now been dealing with epilepsy, though unofficially diagnosed for close to 13 years now, if my math is right. And for the longest time, I didn't know what it was that caused my seizures. And it scared me because at any moment, I could black out, collapse, have a seizure, fall on the stairs, have a seizure, fall, black out at the wheel, driving, have a seizure. It took a while to get over that. And now, for the most part, it kind of runs second, second wind in my mind. I've learned what typically tends to cause my seizures, seizures being a combination of high stress, lack of water, lack of sleep, lack of food. I specifically remember two seizures that I had while I was in college. Both of them were during finals week. And I think after the second one, where I was on campus at Manet Hall, in front of a couple of my friends getting ready to go to class to take a final, I had a seizure, came back from it, didn't take the final, went home, relaxed, and reflected, and that's where I realized those are the things that can cause me to have a seizure sometimes. Living since then and now having been three years seizure-free, I've learned that it is those four things when they come to a head that I could potentially pass out, have a seizure. And going back, thinking about my dad's statement about it being the scariest thing that he ever experienced in his life, I couldn't really comprehend that until I was home during home at home one summer after college. I was over at a buddy's house. We were hanging out in the basement playing some video games. His older brother was with us sitting on the bed texting his buddies. Next thing we know, we hear a loud thump on the wall and look to our right and he's sitting on the bed staring at the ceiling foaming at the mouth. I'd never seen someone experience a grand mal seizure until that moment. But in that moment is when I realized the impacts. It made sense why my dad said it was the scariest thing he'd ever experienced because grand mal seizures are no joke. Another thing my doctor told me was having a grand mal seizure, the impact it has on your body is like you run a marathon in 30 to 45 seconds that you experience a grand mal seizure. So you're out for the next 24 hours at least. A couple things that I did after having my seizures, 
the big one being in two speech classes I took, senior year of high school, freshman year of college. I chose to write about and speak about seizures and epilepsy. One thing that I came across while learning about and doing my research was that there's something called SUDS. It's an acronym for Sudden Unexpected Death from Seizures. And that can come from a number, a number of things. Like for instance, the first seizure I had in college studying for a final, it was about midnight, the last thing I remember. And apparently I was tired of studying. I got up, went upstairs to go check on what my, my roommates were doing. And I got to the bottom of the stairs, blacked out, collapsed on the stairs and had a seizure. I didn't take that final either. It's taken me a while to process this and to be honest, it was actually uh, this event that really started to inspire me to start exploring this part of my life more deeply and writing about it specifically. There's one thing that I've learned coming out of these thoughts and experiences is that it's weird to me how I can remember so much about my mom, her battle with cancer, her life, coming home after seventh grade and sitting at her bedside, holding her hand, watching, uh, what do you call them? Soap operas in the afternoon, watching her type on her laptop, watching her play Buck Euchre with her friends online. But I can also forget almost an entire year of my life and never have any remembrance of it. Ninth grade, a feeling in my gut tells me it was one of the best years of my high school experience, even though I don't remember any of it. I talked to my buddies about it, who I'm still close with, close with from high school. And from what the conversations I've had with them, it sounds like it was an awesome time, but I just don't remember any of it, no matter how hard I try. So something I've become rather fascinated with over the last few months is death and memory and how they intertwine with each other, how they intersect with each other, their relationship with each other, and the role they play in the everyday life of human beings like all of us here. Thank you. One of the things I really appreciate about the moth, which again, my inspiration for, for creating this event, is you never know what to expect. Uh, some of the stories are funny, uh, some of them are very sad, some of them are tragic. And when Ben first told me this story that he wanted to do tonight, I thought, it's perfect. So once again, Ben Strand. Thanks again to everyone that participated in a night of storytelling at No Name Bar for sharing their personal stories today on Culture Click. To keep up on all things Winona and the surrounding area, tune into Culture Click Thursdays at 1230 right here on 89.5 KQAL. I'm Bradley Harris. Tune in next week to hear part two of a night of storytelling at No Name Bar. Creating cultural awareness and understanding. You've been listening to Culture Click. Support for Culture Click is made possible by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Culture Click is produced by KQAL-FM on the campus of Winona State University. For more information, look us up on the web at kqal.org. And thanks for listening to Culture Click.